Okay, guys, I'm recording today because uh, this week I was invited to speak on one of the top podcasts for uh, my subject or my current subject, which is uh, to let a lot of you in on it, and I probably can explain more today, is neurofeedback. Um, And whatever you think of it, I'll have some interesting information for you. However, um, this podcast I want to use as kind of a practice for when I appear on that podcast uh, so that things go smoothly. You know, they say that um, the secret to performing is preparation. And so uh, hopefully this will be edifying for some of you and and useful. But um, even if not, I'm hoping to get some really good practice out of speaking about these topics um, kind of off the cuff so that I will be more prepared um, on, on the day of. And so the first thing that I probably, and I have kind of several agendas I've created depending how, what they want to do. But um, the first thing is, uh, I'd probably talk about why I am into neurofeedback. And I would say the first reason is, I feel like everyone kind of knows or is catching on that there's got to be more than the drugs-based model of mental health. And I say that because we've all become aware that you know, there are side effects. We know that often people uh, gain tolerance or dependence. There are long-term withdrawal syndromes of psychiatric medication. Uh, Occasionally, um, those side effects are bad, but also uh, they don't always work for people. You know, depending on what studies you look at, antidepressants may work for, what, 50% of people? And that's certainly an achievement. I don't mean to um, dispute that or negate that. It's just that, look, we've got half of people that aren't being helped. And so it almost feels, I get the sense that when people are uh, receptive to the message of neurofeedback, that they're sensing that there's something missing here. Maybe it's just the reason that medications work for some, not others, or why they don't work forever. You know, we all probably have the experience of a substance that worked well for us to produce certain feelings for a certain amount of time. Now it no longer does. Or um, something I learned from a pharmacology professor friend here at UF. You know, the brain wants to produce homeostasis. The brain wants to stay stable and where it's at because that's conducive to survival. You know, I think I've heard Jay say, it wouldn't be great for survival if you were just happy all the time. Um, You would want to have negative thinking in there as well. So you can challenge assumptions uh, a lot of which apparently can come from the right hemisphere is what I'm learning. Apparently, that's what I've read. Um, so you want a more balanced perspective. So your body, if you give it something like an antidepressant that increases serotonin or something that increases dopamine or norepinephrine, uh, apparently, and this goes for many chemical substances, not just psychiatric drugs, your body will reduce the sensitivity to that drug at the receptor level and it may actually downregulate receptors for that drug. And what that means is your body at a cellular level will reduce the amount of places that that drug can attach and enter the cell so that that drug is less effective over time. And that is actually involved in what produces dependence, tolerance, and withdrawal. Because once you downregulate and desensitize those receptors, your endogenous neurotransmitters, the, the um, ones that are native to you, those no longer work as well when you come off the substance. And so I've wanted for a long time a way that we could maybe bypass some of these negatives of drugs. 
And something about the idea that it's not the chemical process that you're interested in with the brain, but the electrical processes really makes sense. I mean, if you think about it, uh, the closest correlate to consciousness, and I believe Jay would verify this because I, I learned it to him, um, is, uh, is a, f a frequency of your brain waves. I think it's the coupling of, is it gamma, gamma to alpha um, that Jay has talked about. And this is even actually used by anesthesiologists during surgery to determine the arousal of, of a patient. And we can debate what consciousness really is and is arousal the same as et cetera, the same as consciousness. For the sake of argument, or at least that is one school of thought, I think, that points us towards electricity being the fundamental sort of, they would call it a substrate of consciousness. Um, there's also the quantum theory of, of intelligence or of consciousness, which is that uh, the, there are quantum or there are electromagnetic fluctuations at a very tiny, quantum means tiny, at a very tiny level in your cells called something, something called the microtubules, that those seem to be what is producing intelligence and consciousness. Uh, that is how your brain produces it mechanistically or that is as close as we can get and it's only a theory right now but here's something else um we have learned through things like tms studies there's other content that the the co-host can mention we've learned through some through fda approved treatments like tms that if you bypass the chemical symptoms systems and if you stimulate a cell at an electrical level not at a chemical level you can bypass a lot of that down regulation and a lot of that withdrawal and tolerance that is produced by chemical substances. And an additional benefit of this is you can target neurofeedback and you can target some of these other treatments like TMS in ways that you can't with drugs. You know, you've probably heard that an antidepressant uh, floods your brain with serotonin. And your brain has multiple different types of serotonin receptors. And those serotonin receptors do different things. Some of them are actually stimulating from what I've read. And so you may not necessarily, even if this, the serotonin theory of, nerve, of uh, depression is true, you may not necessarily want serotonin throughout the whole brain. What you may want is serotonin where you actually need it. Well, what you're not, it's not so much the serotonin that you need. You need the conductivity or the, the um, neurotransmission of the cells. You need the cells to communicate. That's what I meant. You need the neurons to communicate in a fashion that is useful to you, that helps you maintain a positive mood and to survive. You don't need the neurotransmitter per se. Neurofeedback is bypassing the neurotransmitter to create the neurotransmission directly. And we're doing it through thought. So a lot of people ask me, well, what is neurofeedback? And I've heard a lot of flowery ways to say it, but the simplest explanation I can give you is, as I understand it, when you show someone a symbol on a, a symbol on a screen, like a flash of light or a sound, even a vibration of when their brain waves change, because our brain waves are not static, they do change. They change in frequency and in power and in probably other ways. Um, when they change in a direction that we desire and we flash a piece of light using computer software, the brain sees that. Somehow it sees it. It recognizes that it, it is that it, that is indicative of its own internal activity, and it changes the activity. It is conditioned, similar to in in practice, to Pavlov's dogs, to produce more 
of that behavior in the future. Um, and I, to my knowledge, we don't precisely know why. I think there are theories. One of the theories I've heard is that the brain is information gathering even about itself. And so if we give it information about itself, it has the capacity to see that. I think I heard from Nick Doggers recently um, at AAPD, another clinician, uh, very interesting guy, that there are experiments showing that the brain is, they prove that the brain recognizes things that we may not consciously recognize. Example, they can flash a laser at a very low power or um, energy of light. Um, I'm not a physicist, sorry. Um, very low uh, energy is behind that laser. It's very low in um, brightness. And they wait until the moment that the person says they can no longer see it. But what they found is the person's optical centers still see it. They still record a stimulus. And um, apparently they showed this quite convincingly. So it's not simply an after effect. I hope I didn't tell the experiment wrong. But the idea is we do have perceptions that we may not necessarily be aware of. Um, I've even heard things like your nerves can perceive, um, in your fingertips can perceive uh, stimuli that are only an electron apart, um, which is very interesting. So anyway, I wish I could tell people better how it works. I don't know how. I just know that, and I am convinced that we can, the brain does gain awareness and control of these brainwave rhythms, and that th the brain can be conditioned to produce those rhythms sort of by default, not simply when we need them. Although apparently, as Jay has talked about, once exposed to neurofeedback, once we for say, say example, a reward was called the alpha rhythm, that after something like an 18 month, 18 week experiment rather, um, that subjects were asked to produce an alpha rhythm on their own. That is, they're not showing them any flashes of light or, or, or giving them a clue as to when they're producing it, that those subjects can suddenly produce it um, at whim. Uh, so it's very, very interesting. You know, if that's still not clicking for people, and it, it is sort of an, a big idea, almost like E equals MC squared to me sometimes. Maybe it's not incidental that that's, that talks about energy. But um, I had a UF friend say to me one time, uh, you know, they show people something like a bubbling waterfall. They measure their brainwaves and then they show them a bubbling waterfall. And they say, change your brainwave activity to make that waterfall bubble more. And then they walk away. And the reason they walk away is they can't tell you how to do it because everyone does it in a little bit of a different way. As Jay, I've heard Jay said before, Jay is the, the me, a person who is a big um, inspiration to me on this podcast. I've heard Jay say before, if I could tell you how to do it, I wouldn't need feedback. I wouldn't need the equipment. I could just talk therapy you into um, the, the healthy brainwaves. Um, another thing I want to touch on, there was a recent BBC article, I think by someone at MIT, that rhythm is sort of fundamental of life. And we find it in so many different places. You know, we find it in the circadian rhythm. We find it in bird, frogs chirping, birds singing, crickets. Um, different uh, rhythms are produced by many different organisms. Our speech, apparently speech rhythm is so fundamental to speech that if you remove it, uh, much of the meaning, or it's, it's, I don't know if this is exaggerated, it may even be impossible to tell the rhythm, the, uh, the meaning sometimes. So 
it's so fundamental that the, they argue that it may speak to its inherent necessity for life. And we know from things like studies on music that when people are exposed to, to rhythms, that their brain will produce those rhythms. For instance, I think I've heard that um, patterned rhythm increases slow frequency brain waves and that um, uh, sequenced or repetitive rhythms produce high frequency brain waves. They've even found that when you have um, a rhythm, let's say uh, every half second, and they gave examples. One of the examples they gave for this beat was um, stones. I can't get no satisfaction that if there is a way to sort of infer a half beat, I guess in music that's called syncopation. If there's a way to infer an implied middle beat that the brain will produce another rhythm um, that will uh, resemble that sub beat or that rhythm, that's that rhythm within the rhythm. And um, there's a lot of neat experiments they describe. Um, I can provide that article if you guys need it. And so um, it seems like rhythm is fundamental. And we know that brainwaves, we've already argued, are fundamental. Um, even electricity, you know, EM fields uh, often have a wavelength to them or a frequency. So it's, it's incredible. And if I didn't have enough proof that to suspect this, you know, there are studies being done now on, um, and this was actually what cracked neurofeedback from me. I was skeptical. People had encouraged me to do it, but I was skeptical for actually several years until I came across a study a few years ago done by, I believe the professor's name is uh, Sang. I believe it might be George Sang or George Sai at uh, MIT um, in affiliation with Georgia, Georgia Tech, um, which is that uh, they produced um, improvements in memory in uh, and, and cognitive performance in mice that were bred to be susceptible to Alzheimer's dementia, which is a buildup of proteins. There's going to be some distinctions I may not be aware of there, but essentially these mice were bred to have a buildup of proteins similar to the way that we find in Alzheimer's patients. And these mice had Alzheimer's-like symptoms. When they played them a 40 hertz rhythm, uh, and when they also did 40 hertz flashes of light, that these mice, after a period of, say, a month, performed like young mice on cognitive tests, which I believe involved things like maze navigation. And it was a really incredible result. They have since performed this experiment on humans, and uh, I believe it was MIT uh, as well, Psy, that um, these humans uh, had reduction of brain plaques. They were, it was visible reduction in brain plaques after being exposed to 40 hertz stimuli for um, many, you know, several sessions, some dozen, a few dozen sessions. Um, so it's quite incredible. And so when I heard that, that for me was all I needed. It sort of cracked the case for me on where I should be looking, that it's not neurotransmitters necessarily, because those are, we discussed, those are dirty. Um, they often, they don't even just attach to their, their own receptor guys. Um, some of the molecules, for instance, alcohol, apparently it's such a tiny receptor, it, 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 a tiny molecule it attaches to everything. But all these drugs, if you ever go on Wikipedia, they all attach to dozens and dozens of molecules in the brain or dozen re receptors for those molecules of different types, you know. Um, but anyway, it was the brain waves is what I should have been, been looking at, the EEG. 
Um, the EEG, as you guys know, is a measure of the electroencephalogram. It's a measure of the brain's electrical activity. They discovered early on, well, I don't, I don't know what you would say is earlier on, but they discovered in the last 120 years, let's say, that the brain has a rhythm. It has pattern, um, rhythmicity, they call it. And so these waves seem to be organized. There is organization. I don't know that we can entirely um, know what the organization is with exacting detail yet. We don't know, for instance, this brainwave represents this thought, but I believe that they're already getting closer to that. I believe there are people, I know some colleagues at UF that have, have investigated this, that they're using EEG to do things like allow uh, people to speak at a certain rate and they're using, I believe it's been used in speech, people can use it to in, include uh, control characters on the screen, such as video game characters, or maybe even a mouse. Um, we may be able to use it to recreate imagery that your brain is producing one day. So I know that we're going to get more detail, but for right now, we do know that it correlates with certain states. We know that um, the EEG, the patterns in the EEG, um, for instance, alpha waves, when seen in the back of the head, are associated with calm attention. We know that beta waves are associated, and gamma, are associated with high performance, memory activation. I even heard recently that they're associated with metabolic. Beta waves are associated with meta metabolism, increased metabolism. We know that they are associated with blood flow to certain areas of the brain. As Jay has talked about, there's a correlation. Um, we know that they, you know, one of the ways I understand that they monitor sleep uh, for sleep disorders is they monitor your brain waves. We've talked about surgery, how they monitor your consciousness using brain waves. Well, they also use it to detect uh, problems, sleep disorders. We know that they can detect seizures. You know, I, uh, to my knowledge, before a seizure, there's something to the effect of the name of sharp wave that shows um, a very large uh, depolarization and then a, a hyperpolarization of the neurons, a spiking of the neurons. A lot of energy in a certain area of the brain. I think sometimes those are uh, also there's also a phenomenon called focal points, but the idea focal areas. But the idea is um, these brain waves. They're not random, um, and so I became fascinated with what do these mean. And and one of the other thing that had had fascinated me was there in many different drug studies. If you look at studies on pharmaceuticals, um, medications for any purpose, often they have done EEG studies. And they do find that these medications produce um, certain EEG patterns uh, reliably, meaning repeatedly they do this. And so uh, I that further to me suggests that there is an, uh, an or rhyme or a reason, a rhyme and reason to the madness. This isn't simply chaos. These are indicative of what the drug is doing. And indeed, if what we're seeking is for neurons to fire a certain way, neurons that fire together, wire together, if what we're seeking is the firing of the neurons, then maybe the chemical isn't what's, what's fundamental. Maybe it's that firing pattern. If we can get there another way, and even better if that way has less or next to no side effects for many people, then that would be the best way to do it. It's also, as I know, and as probably Jay has said, many other people have said, it's more durable. It's more durable of result. The other thing that we're finding out is these brainwave patterns, um, We there's something called um, a phenotype. A phenotype, I believe it is considered or it is close to a form of biomarker. Uh, what is that? It is a sign of a physiological process that is significant. 
um, significantly correlated with the behavior that you're monitoring. So it's this idea that a brainwave could tell us about what the brain is doing in a way that clues me into a disease state. It could tell me there's a disease state is there, or it might tell me the brain is healthy. And um, one of the guys on the show, one of the reasons I respect him so much, you know, he's read more brain scans than probably any living human at this point. He had read 500,000 uh, as of the mid-90s. And so I can only imagine what he's at now. But um, through that process, he and his colleague, um, John Stone, uh, and he may have others, discovered um, something like, I think if you include all of his phenotypes, which includes for autism, which is six or seven patterns, and then those for ADHD, which are five or so patterns, that there's something like 15 or 16 of these phenotypes. And I found it just remarkable because if you know what phenotype someone's having, then you know what brainwaves need to be changed with the neurofeedback in order to produce the result you want. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a colleague of mine. I was lucky enough to have uh, Jay review my scan. And so that was immensely enlightening. You know, it's so validating uh, I want to say to you guys and, and to the, the, the host of this podcast, it's so validating when you can experience something um, and that a person who, you know, Jay didn't know me from Adam when he, when he reviewed my brainwaves, but it's like he was speaking into my soul, you know, and there were patterns in there um, that are associated, you know, there are some, I have a mild, uh, well, did he say mild? I have an ADHD associated phenotype. I have one of the phenotypes associated uh, with mild depression, you know, I'm fortunate that it's not too strong. Um, and, uh, there's also a phenotype associated with kind of, uh, if I can be open with you guys, high functioning autism. Um, it's a pattern, uh, interestingly behind the right ear. And when there's a lot of activity there, the person, uh, often will have PTSD like systems, symptoms rather. Um, and it can be associated with anxiety. And so it was really validating to hear uh, that those were so obvious in the pattern, uh, in my brainwaves. Um, and then obviously, um, both with myself and for others, you know, a lot of people, it's a joke among therapists um, that, and you generally have to be a licensed mental health cancer to offer no feedback. Um, but for myself, um, or a lot of therapists say, as I do, that they became interested in the technology once they experienced it, you know, and the transformations that I have seen, you know, uh, even just my short time uh, observing it, I've seen reductions in symptoms of epilepsy. I have seen uh, people uh, increase their empathy. I've seen people overcome public speaking fears. Um, massively improved sleep. I mean, I have seen people's sleep score uh, that we have tracked for ages improve overnight with neurofeedback. Um, and has it helped everyone with everything? No, but generally there's been outcomes that we've been able to produce for everyone that, I, that I'm familiar with their treatment. And uh, the the other thing is I have a hope that what really needs to be tweaked is maybe the protocol and not the treatment itself, you know, um, that this is something that can be addressed by altering the protocol. And those friends are in the process now with their clinician of altering those protocols to, 
to get where they want. And I think it's really interesting some of the ways that may account for why certain protocols don't work for certain people or um, some people actually may occasionally do experience side effects and how you can address those has been very interesting. But yeah, it's imagine that someone has sought therapy for years and then suddenly overnight you're witnessing uh, massive reductions in anxiety that are not, they're durable or something as, as fundamental as epilepsy, you know, it, it's not something, or sleep, you know, once you see enough of these, it's very hard for someone to tell me that this is placebo, you know, and we have a biomarker of something changed in the body, uh, which is the brainwave itself. If the brainwaves are now different, consistently, immeasurably different, um, I have no reason to see that's a that's a concrete change in the physiology that led to a symptom reduction, which to me is um, uh, and it's targeted, it's repeatable, and it's repeatable across individuals. The other thing I'll say is, you know, yes, this is probably the experience that I I want to discuss the most. You know, I began uh, SMR neurofeedback for the uh, for the improvement to sleep. You know, there's a form of neurofeedback that is very known for sleep improvements. And this form of neurofeedback, uh, I tried it one time. I had uh, immediate, you know, improvement in sleep. I'm not, I actually have not done very much of this form of neurofeedback yet. Um, but what struck me more was the reductions in anxiety. And I have since seen that among several friends. And so um, the reason that's important here is no one told me that it would produce anxiety reduction, nor had I read it anywhere. So, but sure enough, if you Google SMR neurofeedback and anxiety, you're going to find out that um, it reduces anxiety for many people in, in one treatment session significantly. And so when I hear something like that, that is, it's just very hard for me to believe that it's, that it's placebo or it's incidental. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. Mechanistically, why would it do that? Well, SMR waves, according to uh, people that study them, including the, the researcher who, did, who first uh, entrained them with cats, they are, may and are likely associated with the function of GABA neurons. If you know anything about the body, you know that GABA neurons are, um, they are the main inhibitory system of the body. In fact, I've heard it said that they may be the only inhibitory system in the body, or they are. So much so that the way that you stop a seizure is with a GABA drug. The way that you sedate and anesthetize people, the way that you put them under sedation is with GABA drugs. That's how they do surgery. And the way that you get inebriated and um, compromise your function uh, is intoxicated is through GABA neurons. Alcohol works on GABA neurons, um, as do uh, famous drugs called benzodiazepines. Um, and so in other words, this one system in the body, it seems to reduce anxiety, which by the way is why a lot of people drink. And it also seems to reduce epilepsy. And it also seems to uh, produce better or deeper sleep or it, 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 um, it, it um, instantiates sleep or it begins sleep. These are all reported effects of treatment with SMR neurofeedback. 